Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to thepetecallendershow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. We haven't talked about this issue much, or at least I haven't on this show. But the issue of homelessness is one. It's it's. I don't need to sound too too negative here. Homelessness an issue, but it is it, as we head into election year. Expect homelessness to be you know a, a big deal. That Democrats. It's funny. I remember when it was a big deal when Reagan was in office, and then when Clinton was in office, no one did homelessness stories anymore. We know there are serious homeless issues. Uh, all around the place that have nothing to do with people's access to having a roof over their head. We see it in the streets of San Francisco. We see it. We see it in Charlotte. You see it, you know, different intersections and places like that. But is is it a homeless crisis or is it a lifestyle choice? And I don't mean that in a positive way. I mean, the streets of San Francisco and other places are riddled with drug problems and people who want to because a lot of shelters, you have to be clean. To go to this, the homeless camps in Wilmington and other places are riddled with drugs and people that just want to be off the grid. It's it doesn't mean it's not real, but to pretend you're going to solve it unless you round them up and put them in a camp and force them to be to not allow them to live in, in a public park or along a railroad track. You're going to have to do something else very different. You can't just continue doing. But the way the left looks at this issue, I kind of caught a story over at MSNBC that. It's Diane Yentl. She's the president and CEO of the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. And when I read through the story, I was a little aghast. I mean, I'm, I'm also a landlord. I have properties. And, and when I read these things, it, it, it terrifies me the way the left looks at homelessness. I mean, the rent control situation in New York for the past 30 years is bad enough. Imagine if you had rent control in North Carolina, what that would look like. A recent report from the Department of Housing and Urban Development prepared for Congress confirms what so many of us see in our communities. The number of people without homes has reached record levels. Wait a minute. Has under Biden? According to the report, the 2023 point in time count showed the highest number of people experiencing homelessness on a single night since reporting began in 2007. Kind of a recent since time began, isn't it? Since last year, the number of people experiencing homelessness increased by 12%. A full 40% of people experiencing homelessness were unsheltered, living in places not meant for human habitation. Now, none of this is really surprising to the folks that hear this, but it's when this individual and people like her believe they are going to solve it when a lot of the people that are homeless are homeless by choice. And I'm not that's not being heartless. There's plenty of shelters. There's plenty of opportunities. There's plenty of places to go. But those people and if you've talked to people who have served in cities in different roles, even in, in, in social services, they'll tell you we've talked to people. They don't want to. They don't want the rules. That's the bad news. The good news, as we've already seen before, with action from Congress, with action from the government, the administration, state and local communities, homelessness is solvable and preventable. No, it's not. That's that's a myth. That's not true. During the pandemic, lawmakers at the federal, state and local levels prevented. Now, this is the part that concerns me, scares me a little bit. During the pandemic, and I remember this, it didn't come to this. It didn't affect me directly, but it it does in larger cities, and it did. Local, federal, state folks prevented 
prevented an eviction tsunami by providing unprecedented resources and protections. The measure included $46.6 billion, your taxpayer money that had to be borrowed from your kids and your grandkids, in emergency rental assistance and a national moratorium on evictions. That's the part that should scare you. For non-payment of rent, emergency housing vouchers, and other resources to move people experiencing homelessness to safety. So in that, and think about what that says. Let's take that apart from a policy perspective for a second and say moratorium on evictions. That means if you own a property and your tenants stopped paying rent, you were not allowed to evict them. They could just sit there. Now, that doesn't make them evil, but it makes the people that want to keep them there less than specious because you, as the property owner, you still have to pay the mortgage on that house if you have one. You still have to pay the insurance on that house if you're insuring it. You still have to maintain the house, by the way. So if the person is facing an eviction moratorium, you still have to. If there's a hole in the roof, you got to fix it. If there's damage to it, you have to pay for it. So you've just shifted the burden to the person that made the investment to provide the roof over the person that otherwise would be homeless. There's an agreement when you, when you sign that, and when you take, if you really want to hurt the homelessness issue, tell property owners that they'll no longer be able to evict people who don't pay rent. And then watch the amount of affordable housing go away as people stop putting houses out for rent, especially in, in certain key places, especially in inner cities, especially in, in very urban areas. You, wanna, you really want to create the belief that at any given point in time, your local government can suspend those people having to pay rent. Why would I or anyone else invest in property that you can't derive income from or that won't even cover the bills? Imagine if you had a rental situation. I have some, one in particular, where it's all, well, it's actually two, that all of the, uh, the bills are covered. In other words, their rent includes their, their power, includes their water sewer, includes all of those. It makes it simple for someone who just wants one bill. But imagine if the government comes in and says, oh, you don't have to worry about paying your rent. All of a sudden, the owner's got to pay the power bill, the water bill, all the other bills. This is obscene. The worst of COVID, back to the article, the worst of COVID may be behind us, but the nation's housing and homelessness crisis remains. Congress must act now with the same resolve it found during the worst of COVID. In other words, the situation that COVID caused, Congress should have the same expediency giving more money away. Why, though? But the, the, notice that this attitude places no sense of responsibility on any of the people that find themselves. And, and by the way, there are tons of help programs. There are billions of dollars in welfare. There are billions of dollars in SNAPs, uh, uh, nutritional aid. There, there are tons of programs already out there. We just expanded the, the Medicare, I mean, Medicaid in North Carolina. So there are tons of assistance. And this group wants to go further. At what point is it a lifestyle supported by government? Homelessness is a policy choice. No, it's not. It's a personal choice in many instances. In fact, in most, if you were to take drugs out, if you were to look at the people who honestly find themselves in difficult times, it's a percentage of the homeless population. It isn't all of them because there are so many programs out there to help. It's a consequence of this, back to the article, it's the consequence of longstanding failure by the U.S. to prioritize the housing needs of its lowest income residents. No, it's not. That's absolutely not true. That's propaganda. 
over at MSNBC. The lack of access to affordable homes. Nationally, there are fewer than four homes affordable and available for every 10 of the lowest income people. What's affordable? The shortage of homes for extremely low-income renters is a structural feature of the country's housing system. It's persistent and pervasive. The shortage has worsened as housing costs continue to outrun gains. Now, this is interesting because the federal government and, and many others have built housing complexes, and they fall into disrepair. They fall into – they're not maintained, not taken care of, and then they become horrific places infested with drugs and every manner of horrific situation that you would never want kids or a family to be in. So they don't keep them. They don't maintain them the way they should. But somehow they put the blame on everybody but the people. In, and again, doesn't it sound harsh to say that? Because there are some legitimately legitimate people that are un, find themselves in, in, under strife, under difficult situations. But a lot of the folks out there that are in this, that, that, that you see as homeless are not. They choose to be there. Today, half of the nation's 20 most common occupations, which account for more than 49 million workers, pay median wages that are less than half or excuse me, less than what a full-time worker needs to earn to afford a modest one-bedroom apartment. In what market? In what area? You just lump the entire nation as if New York and Raleigh were the same. They're not, or Charlotte. All right. Do the current world events have you wondering whether we are teetering on the edge of catastrophe? Are you concerned it's going to reach our shores? Okay, so what are you doing about your concerns? Let me help. Carolina Readiness Supply at carolinareadiness.com. Whether you're looking to expand your emergency preparedness supplies or you have no idea where to even begin, Carolina Readiness Supply can help you. Food, water purifiers, tools, first aid kits, instructional materials, camping and hiking supplies even. Because being prepared is just smart. Carolina Readiness Supply has 2,000 square feet of supplies and educational materials that you'll need for any kind of emergency. In Waynesville and always at carolinareadiness.com, veteran-owned Carolina readiness supply will you be ready when the lights go out we were talking about the homelessness situation a little bit before the break and, and the way the left always portrays it's, it's it's always racist it's always that of the homeless the universal homeless problem is one of government and greedy landowners greedy greedy property owners that that and it's weird. It's kind of like the same thing you find in local elections when people run. And if anyone's affiliated with building in any way, they are somehow evil. And I always find it interesting because from an economic standpoint, there's three things human beings need to live, thrive, and survive. You need clothing, you need food, and you need shelter. And somehow the people that provide you clothing are no more or less wicked than anyone else. They generally are, are seen as, hey, it's good. People who make clothing is good. It's good. People who provide food, whether they're farmers or producing food, are generally seen as good. I mean, there's kind of a war on sugar and carb. Big sugar has its own governmental problems. But by and large, you're glad you can go to the grocery store. You're glad you have a thousand different options of things to choose from. And kind of any kind of food you want to make, buy, purchase, be a part of, it's good. You need food to survive. But somehow, people who build things are seen as bad. They're a builder. They build whole, they build their evil developers. And the truth of the matter is people who build homes for people who want to live in homes are not, are again, they are no less worthy than farmers. And it's bizarre to me, but let's take it a step further because there are people who build homes that they rent to people and it's kind of, it alleviates someone from having the obligation to take care of the full responsibility of owning that home. They they rent it. They don't have to put a down payment on it. They don't have to 
sometimes they often don't even have to furnish it. They have a place. So it, it, it fulfills a need in society if you're renting, that, that you have property to rent. So there'll be the big complaint, business people don't build enough affordable housing. Well, why would I ever want to build an affordable housing complex if I know that the same people that want me to build affordable housing will also support them not paying rent if things get tight? It's, it's this moronic way of looking at things from a policy standpoint that makes little to no sense. And furthermore, they, they blame the very people that are trying to provide. It's not like these people that are, that are writing these reports are going out and building affordable housing with their own money. They're using all of their money lobbying to get more money from the government. They Then they go into the rest of this column from MSNBC, from the, the person who wrote it, and, and it, that's important. So it's not just MSNBC. The author is Diane Yentl, president and CEO of the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. They go on in the, in the latter part of this. They say systemic racism of the past and present has led to significant racial disparities in housing and homelessness. People of color are more likely to rent their homes or more likely to face cost burdens, evictions, homelessness. Ongoing injustices and discriminatory practices persist to this day, putting millions of households of color. So they're making it. So black households are 13% of the U.S. population and 21% of the U.S. population living in poverty. HUD report. Now, now think about that. That means 79% of the U.S. population living in poverty is not black. And I'm not, I'm not saying it's not an issue. What I'm saying is, it's a widespread issue that affects people of all races. In the If it's a problem, it's a problem for all. It's not just a problem for one. Latino households had the largest numerical increase in homelessness. I wonder why. You have to wonder why. Why would that be? Well, I don't know. An extra 12 million in the country? Asian Af- Americans had the greatest percentage increase in homelessness. Very low. 37% of all people experiencing homelessness and half of people experiencing homelessness as families with children. Now, I'm not out here saying, hey, homelessness is great. It's wonderful. Everyone should want to be homeless. No. What I'm saying is quit blaming the people that are, that are trying to provide housing for the problem. Quit blaming people that are trying to build and quit making it so difficult for people that want to build it. Also, require people that do end up having the opportunity to have a home take care of it better. Defend the property owners also. And also it, openly say, openly say we have a mental health issue in the country. Openly say we have a serious drug problem in the country. Openly say that those are two of the largest contributors to homelessness in the nation. You don't hear that. And nowhere in this article does it say that. Nowhere does it also say that a lot of the people with those issues do not apply for any kind of assistance. In other words, you can blame that there's a problem, but you also have to admit that a lot of the people do not try to get those assistance programs because there are some kind of standards with them, so they don't apply. But instead, we blame. And and, and if you want to, you know, I, I've always been a believer, while in elected office, while a columnist, when I ran the Center for Local Innovation, and as a business owner, and I believe that that, 90% and it's true it's not i didn't come up this is not axiomatic to me it's 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 national it's everywhere 90% of solving a problem is understanding it first but if you're using the problem if the problem becomes the reason you exist then you don't really want that problem solved do you i mean if 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 retired people didn't face any serious problems out there aarp wouldn't exist aarp a varied left thing in fact AARP's the, the success rate of, of p- 
pigeonholing AARP as a leftist organization has been so successful that AARP is now running commercials that start out with the following line. Hey, we don't always agree with what AARP does, but on Social Security, they get it right. That's the line from several commercials. AARP knows they have a leftist problem. They're they're seen as that. And the more comfortable retired people are facing that and preparing for that, the less relevant AARP becomes. The less relevant, if you look at every organization, do they really want to solve the problem? It's kind of like pharmaceuticals. How many pharmaceuticals do you find that, that, that cure an illness? Or is it more likely that pharmaceuticals are going to treat the illness and you get to take that pharmaceutical product for the rest of your life? We're not good at curing stuff, are we? we you get these drug commercials and, hey, you can take it for the rest of your life. It'll reduce the symptoms. And the same thing with all, if you look at a lot of these special interest groups, they don't really want their problem solved because if the problem was solved, if the nation was seen, by and large, as not racially motivated at all, which by and large were not, then race-based organizations wouldn't exist, would they? They'd starve. The William Barber wouldn't have anything to do if, if people really believed it. But the longer you can keep people stoked up and hate-filled, the longer those special interest groups can go out there and say, look, the problem is due to this, and you need us to solve that problem. Not really. You want us to perpetuate the problem. So there are two articles, and I don't, I don't know how to intermix them or mix it. It's not like chicken soup where you just – it's more like a layer cake. Like here's a layer I'll get to, and then here's another layer I'll get. They're both important, but if you mix them, it wouldn't make any sense. So one of the issues that we we kind of gloss over in society – you know, we had this discussion, and I had a caller last week on, on, on the show I was hosting last week for Brett Winterville. They was talking about, hey, you don't want competition in healthcare on emergency care. And there's a certain truth to that. I mean, I appreciate the listener's perspective on that. We do find a lot of emergency care going to urgent care centers. There is kind of some competition for urgent care, but maybe not trauma care. So because the argument I was making is we need more competition in healthcare, not less. That doesn't mean 100%, but we definitely need more. And I still believe that. But this is the article from Real Clear Health, and it says, it, it's talking about the cost of healthcare and how crazy it's getting. Deanne Waldman wrote the piece at Real Clear Health. It said, U.S. healthcare is impossibly expensive, truly unaffordable, both for individuals and for the nation. Washington promises the next round of upcoming legislative efforts will make it affordable. The latest proposals, just like all the previous ones, won't work. They won't. Government doesn't fix problems. It certainly doesn't fix problems of cost, ever. If it did, you know. The previous discussion about homelessness would be different, wouldn't it? But we've had we've had 50-plus years of the Great Society. It hasn't worked. At what point do we say, look in the mirror of our nation and say, these programs did not work. They failed. We don't need to federalize all this stuff. It needs to be kicked down to the states. It's not working. But we don't. We just say, oh, we just didn't throw enough money at it. Let's waste more money. Shovel the money in. Burn it. Set it on fire. And we'll not solve the problem. But then we'll just complain that it needs more money. We'll just treat this like education. We'll just throw more money and kids will be smarter. We throw more money and homelessness goes away. We throw more money and it solves race. Federally legislated price transparency uh, has resulted, recently been touted as a way to drive down prices. In a free market, transparency works. Healthcare is the opposite. It is a centrally controlled economy where third parties, mainly government and insurance, make spending decisions, not the person who earned the money and who want to conserve it. Making prices transparent to a public that doesn't control spending will never drive down the prices. Another federal tax uh, solution is changing the tax code to increase contribution limits on and flexibility of health savings accounts. While such increases put more control in the patient's hands, which is a good thing, putting more to a family HSA will not change the price 
of that care, it will remain hopelessly unaffordable. The president, disingenuously titled the Inflation Reduction Act of 2023, allows Medicare to negotiate, i.e. dictate, prices for pharmaceuticals and thus drive down by fiat prices for medication. Price fixing on drugs will accomplish what it always does. It'll create shortages, it'll lower the quality, and it lacks any innovation, meaning no new miracle cures. Once you introduce that, you get rid of the kind of competition that goes away. To understand and then fix healthcare affordability, start by analyzing dollar flow. As Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character repeatedly exclaimed in the movie Jerry Maguire, show me the money. For 173 million Americans with government insurance and 26 million who are uninsured, Washington directly determines spending via published allowable reimbursement schedules. For 134 million privately insured Americans, Washington indirectly controls payments since insurers, insurance sellers base their payments on the schedules that we just mentioned. Washington is the decision maker for healthcare spending of all Americans, period. In 2022... $2.6 trillion went to providers, hospitals, and pharmacies. Paid for patient care. Total U.S. healthcare expenditures for 2022 was $4.5 trillion. That amount is greater than the entire GDP of Germany. 41% of all U.S. healthcare spending was taken from patients' care to spend on BARCOM, bureaucracy, administration, rules, regulations, compliance, oversight, mandates, and enforcement. Yeah, said that one breath. To demonstrate such bureaucratic diversion, President Obama took $716 billion from Medicare Trust Fund to pay for Barcombe in the Affordable Care Act. Those billions had been intended to pay for seniors' hospital care. According to trustees, Medicare will run out of money in the next five years, 2028, and be unable to pay for elders' hospital care. Health care is or should be a sustainable business. To survive, a business must maximize value to the customer, minimize expenditures that don't add value, wasteful spending, as paying for healthcare bar com provides no benefit to patients. It should be eliminated. Now, again, this is, you know, I'm reading from one article, kind of going through it. It's basically showing you it's broken. It's broken. It's not fixed. And the only way to really fix it is to get away from what we're currently doing. By cutting Barcom spending from healthcare, we can make healthcare affordable. By eliminating Barcom, we remove Washington as a third-body financial and medical decision maker. As stated in the Tenth Amendment, healthcare is a power reserved to the state, respectively, or to the people, and thus prohibited from federal authority. We can do that. And just a remark, a reminder about what Barcom is. So it's bureaucracy, administration, rules, regulations, compliance, oversight, mandates, and enforcement. That's where 41% of all U.S. healthcare spending, 41%. That's just one part. I do want to get to the other part. The other part is, you know, we, we uh, the Republicans that fell for it on expanding Medicaid, thinking it's going to save rural hospitals. Let's think about this. More than one-fourth, this is the second one, this is over at Forbes, more than one-fourth of Americans, of, of Americans, I'm sorry, more than one-fourth of Americans receive taxpayer-funded healthcare coverage through Medicaid or the Children's Health Insurance Program, CHIP according to the latest federal estimates. But that free coverage has a significant cost. Medicaid beneficiaries must wait longer for health care than those with private insurance. A study from 2021 found that Medicaid patients waited 1.3 days longer than commercially insured ones for primary care. According to another study, Medicaid beneficiaries were 1.6 times less likely to successfully schedule a primary care appointment than those with regular insurance, and 3.3 times less likely to get an appointment with a specialist. We were talking about healthcare before we went to the break, not pretending to solve it all, but uh, appreciate you guys 
being a part of this conversation here. And we were talking about Medicaid expansion because the Republicans finally fell for that. Don't don't pay attention to me. You know, don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain here because Governor Cooper's signature crowning achievement for eight years of being in, in governor. That's it. And it's just rerouting federal money into Medicaid to prop up rural hospitals because the entire system is broken and all they're doing is delaying the inevitable crash. We, we have a, a problem here and just throwing government money around isn't going to fix it. And we were talking about the fact that those on Medicaid, you know, the beneficiaries are less likely to be successful scheduling a visit. They're less likely to secure an appointment. They're less likely to, uh, to get that care. But free coverage has a significant cost. Medicaid beneficiaries have to wait longer than those with private insurance. So when you look at this, you're adding. So Governor Cooper's proud of adding 600,000 people. They really have less access in some ways. Such weights are endemic to public health insurance. A new research paper from the Fraser Institute, a Canadian think tank, can show you what happens if you put everyone on that system. Where will you put uh, So If you're going to put everyone on a public health insurance program, which is what the Democrats want to do, Mind you, that's pretty universal. You don't hear me say all very often, but pretty much all Democrats want one payer system. They want a government run system. Canada gives you a good option to look at. This year, Canadian patients faced a median wait, a median wait of 27.7 weeks for medically necessary treatment from a specialist after being referred by a general practitioner. That's what government run healthcare will look like. That's over six months, the longest ever recorded, by the way. It's a slight increase from last year's median weight of 100 and a 198% increase from the 9.3-week median weight that patients faced in 93 the year that they started tracking wait times. Some patients have it even worse than others. Patients in Nova Scotia, Canada, have a median wait time of 56.7 weeks, more than a year for a treatment following referral. So if you have cancer, you get referred to a specialist, you have to wait over a year how many patients are going to wait a year to start any kind of cancer treatments? Is that what Democrats never want to answer that? And that's why we really do need more competition in healthcare. We need more options, more opportunities, not less. You see how innovative Canada is now? Those on Prince Edward Island are also in a year-long waiting club, a median of just over 55 weeks. Patients face the longest post-referral wait for plastic surgery, a median delay. And that's what we have here in plastic surgery is kind of optional, right? And com competitive, not in Canada. Patients face the longest post-referral wait for plastic surgery, a median delay of just over 52 weeks. Orthopedic and neurosurgery are close behind with a median wait list of 44 and 43 weeks, respectively. Across the board, patients waited a median of just under five weeks, more than what doctors say is clinically reasonable to receive treatment for a specialist after securing a referral. Such long delays for treatment can put patients' health at risk. In 2023, Canadians faced a median wait time of 13 weeks for an MRI. Imagine if you had a concussion. I guess that's emergency, though. 6.6 weeks for a CT scan and five weeks for an ultrasound. All told, more than 1.2 million Canadians out of a population of 38 million. Yes, they have a population of 38 million, about a tenth of what we have. We're waiting for some form of treatment. And each of those patients is waiting. In each of those, patients are waiting for just one procedure. That means 3% of the Canadian population is waiting to receive medical care. In Nova Scotia, 8%. So the point is, do, are, why do we... Why do we relish in moving toward that form of healthcare? Why do we think that that's a good idea? 
Then there are the direct cost. The average Canadian family of four paid about $17,000 in taxes for that free health care. Because it's not free, is it? Their tax dollars appear to just buy them a place in line. So $17,000 a year for your family for that, for that form of health care. Many Canadians are fed up. Less than half are satisfied with the country's health care system, down from nearly 70% in 2020. By the way, a growing number of politicians have begun speaking out about the problems. Democrats have been made expanding Medicaid the centerpiece of their approach to health reform. You've seen it. Governor Cooper didn't come up with this on his own. He was advised, this looks good. This looks good for Democrats to put more people on government subsistence and government programs and have longer wait. It's just (sighs) the progressive wing of the Democrats still pining for Medicare for all, a complete government takeover of health insurance that would import the Canadian-style system to the U.S., but expanding access to coverage is not the same as expanding access to care. That's a line. That's a distinction with a difference, isn't it? Expanding access to coverage is not the same as expanding access to care. A government insurance card mainly buys you a place in line. We, and that's a shame. I mean, I checked. My father was a survivor of, of melanoma. I mean, not survivor. He didn't survive melanoma. He survived. Yeah, he did. Survived melanoma, died of myeloma, two different cancers. But he, was, he survived because he was able to get adequate care quickly, was able to get in to see a specialist. They were able to remove, cut, test, do margins, all of that stuff in a reasonable time. I, being my father's son, wanted to get checked out. And I wanted to make an appointment and said, okay. My doctor said, Jared, yeah, here's a referral. Here, go call the skincare places and see if you can get an appointment. The wait time for me, even on private, six months. I couldn't get in until May. And I called the front desk of that, and I said, do you realize if you have melanoma unchecked for six months, that's likely a death sentence? And they said, oh, we know. And I said, how are you not doing any harm? And they said, well, there's, there's just – there aren't – any other healthcare places? I mean, there aren't any other skincare. There's no real competition in in certain markets and regions in North Carolina and elsewhere. Why? Because we have a silly certificate of need law that's defended by Republicans and Democrats alike that protects the hospital cartel system that limits competition and limits you from having options for your healthcare. So I have to go either out of state or out of region to find a skincare specialist to even look at my skin, much less any other things that I have to deal with. That's the state of our healthcare system in this country right now. Lack of competition is driving us to really adverse adverse outcomes, worse and worse. Now, didn't want to end that. I'll end it on a high note. I'm not going to get into the story, but here's one thing that's good. Positive news for the day is it appears that drinking coffee, yes, drinking coffee, provides a modicum of protection against COVID in another long-term study. There you go. 10%, but hey, 10%-10% as we hear more. Folks, have a fantastic day. I'll be back bright and early tomorrow here on the Pete Callender Program. He'll be back next week. Wishing you a great day. Stay tuned, as always, to WBT to find out all things local.